You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. So glad you're here this morning. God is so good, and I want to take a moment this morning to speak out of Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can open there. We're going to continue this, this series called The Story of Jesus. I think it's fascinating that the Christmas season is the essence of tradition and nostalgia and predictability. Am I right? It, it really is. We all have our set traditions and memories and things that stoke up all sorts of um, nostalgia about this season, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the faces, the people, the places. It's so, it's so fascinating, though, to think back to the very first Christmas and how it was completely unexpected. It wasn't so much that the, the Jewish people were not expecting a Messiah or a Savior. They were. They were anticipating that day to come. But the arrival of Jesus on the planet as a baby born in a stable amongst livestock, placed in a feeding trough, was 100% unexpected. It was just, it was unpredictable. And at the, the heart of the Christmas story, the heart of the story of Jesus, is the upside-down nature of the good news of Jesus. Jesus solidified this kingdom principle, which was spoken about throughout the Old Testament leading up to his arrival, but it's this principle that Jesus stands on their head, the principles of this world. He comes and does a counter work to what we think this world, what makes this world go around. Jesus comes and defies that. He turns them on their head. And that's really good news for us. I'll unpack that this morning. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says that, that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. That's the upside-down nature of the work of Jesus, of the story of Jesus. And that's really good news for you and I, because this morning, you don't have to have a facade or a mask. You don't have to pretend with religious superficialities. Jesus sees you, and it's good news that the kingdom of God is for the real you. Not a version of you that lives up to the expectations of others or religious institutions, but Jesus came for you. And the story of Jesus this morning, I'm praying, will penetrate your life specifically in a fresh way. And we're going to look at the story in Luke chapter 1. Actually, the song of Mary, tradition has it that it's a song. Really, it's just uh, it says she said it. But we're going we're gonna to look at that in Luke chapter 1. Let's pray as we open up God's word. Lord, with just expectant hearts, we we open up your word and we, we come to you this morning. We stir up humility, Lord. We set aside all of our expectations, even of the days to come, and we, we say, Lord, have your way. I pray that upon this morning, Jesus, in every heart and every mind, over every life and every family, Lord, that you'd have your way, King Jesus. Your counterculture way, your counter the principles of this world way, it's it's your kingdom way, and we just pray you'd um, do what only you can do in our hearts. In your name, amen. So we're going to look at this song of Mary. She is expectant. 
She is pregnant. I don't know if you noticed, the, uh, our worship director was not leading worship this morning. That's because she is ready to pop. Paige McGovern is right there, and she is expecting. If she rushes out, just act normal. Keep your, your eyes forward, and she'll be rushing to Mary Greeley. But she is, she has a, uh, her and Joe ha- are expecting a Christmas baby. Their due date is December 24th. Phenomenal. So excited for you. But here, in this context, Luke chapter 1, Mary is expecting. She caught news from the angel that she is going to uh, give birth to the Messiah of the world. That's news. And, um, and so she rushes over to her older cousin Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth is also expecting a very uh, important child, John. And uh, they have this moment just praising the Lord. And Mary sings this, this song or speaks this poem. As the text says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's the principle. God looks upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Mary speaks profoundly of this principle of the kingdom, that God exalts the humble. The, the principles of this world are the strong, the mighty, the authoritative. They rule the day. But Jesus came and he solidified this principle that we see. Even, even she, she said that Abraham spoke of this day coming. And we see it throughout the Old Testament, this principle that God himself takes the mighty off their thrones, and he exalts the humble. She also uses that analogy of the hungry and the rich. Those that are hungry actually have capacity for God to move in their lives. They have capacity for God to come and fill. They actually have a need for God. The rich or the content doesn't even have to be monetarily, but those that are content, they have everything they need. There's no room for God in their lives. That's a form of pride that Mary talks about. So she was one who was humble, and God saw her in her humble estate, and he exalted her for all generations. She becomes a, a key part of the story of Jesus, this humble woman of God. So the key principle I want us to unpack this morning is the story of Jesus clearly demonstrates God's priority of exalting the humble. And I want us to talk through the story, the Christmas story out of the main players of the Christmas story, every single one of them have this principle at play. The humble being exalted. His eyes are searching to and fro for those that actually have space in their lives for God Almighty to work. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Time and time again, I want us to, as a church to be a church that with humility and, and hunger in our hearts, we seek after Jesus alone. That we always have room, Christmas season for sure, but throughout the year, we always have room for God to do what only he can do in our lives. So let's first consider Mary. 
since she is where we started in this song in Saul and Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55 I believe Mary is an example of an insignificant background being brought into kingdom prominence our backgrounds do not define us good bad or indifferent I don't know what your background is but in the kingdom of God it's irrelevant it's, it's, it's not, neither a qualifier nor a disqualifier. In the kingdom of God, God's eyes are looking for those that have humble hearts. And here we have Mary, who's from the, the, um, the insignificant town of Nazareth. It's hard for historians, secular or religious, to find anything, about, find anything out about Nazareth. We, we know it was, it was big enough to have a synagogue, but other than that, there's not much we can know about Nazareth. It was an insignificant town, agricultural. Nobody came from Nazareth that was prominent. It was not an influential town, but yet God sought out Mary in Nazareth. God is not a respecter of our backgrounds. That's good news. Doesn't matter what your family background is, what your ethnicity is. Doesn't matter if you're from New York or London or if you're from Nevada, Iowa. In the kingdom of God, God can intervene and see you in that place, in your humble estate, and He can exalt you to places of influence in the kingdom of God and to places of prominence. And that is the story of Mary. I would actually say that. If we would allow our backgrounds to not play a role for us in the kingdom of God, we can actually be more set up for God to work in our lives. I feel like sometimes our backgrounds can be a stumbling block for God to use us if we have an amazing background because we can, we can falsely buy into this illusion that our background makes something of us, that we are something because of who we are or where we came from. It can actually subtly fool us into thinking that we are who we are because of where we've been. When it's all by the grace of God. And this actually flooded, this flowed, this principle, this idea, I think her background, Mary's background, flowed into even how she carried the, the, the Christ child. Because just think of Mary as, as Mother Mary. I think every mother is given this motherly instinct. We call it like the, the mama bear. You know, she, there's this mama bear that rises up in every mother to protect their child, am I right? I've seen it in my wife. She can get feisty if someone's picking on, our, on our, one of our kids. She just gets stirred up. And if you think of Mother Mary on her way to have the child, she's in the third trimester now, and they have to, they're, they're called back to Bethlehem for this, for this census. They're making their way through Bethlehem, and it is crowded beyond belief. There's no place for, for her to have this child and, and to actually rest before she has the child. I could imagine, the text gives no indication of this, but I could imagine there'd be this sense of uh, stress and worry in her. And she's like, hey, hey, I have the Messiah in me. Hey, is there no place for me? I mean, come on. I, what she was envisioning, I'm sure, was this beautiful, you know, uh, picture window over, overlooking the, the town of Bethlehem, uh, you know, a huge space for her, a birthing room for her to have this child. That's what I'm sure she expected. But she allowed all that to bow to God's ways because she recognized that all this was in God's hands. And if God could use her in, from her insignificant background, God could use her child in the insignificant background that he was born into. 
The Christ child born in a stable. I think it's profound that she was willing to trust God in that, that miraculous of a way. That she, so, she knew he was the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, and yet she was willing to go along with this crazy plan to have him set in a, a uh, livestock trough. That's humility. That's humility. That's, that, that's the ability to trust God Almighty over our ways. That's, that's the upside-down nature of the good news of Jesus, and that's really good news for every single one of us. The kingdom of God is a level playing field with regards to backgrounds. So let's consider Joseph. I believe Joseph is an example, an example of the opinions of others dying to radical obedience. Joseph, who is a man of God, a devout man, a respected man, hardworking man, comes from a respected lineage, in the line of David, a carpenter. But when, in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph hears that his bride-to-be is now pregnant, what does he do? He, he, he wants to do the respectable thing and in quiet and private divorce her. In Jewish tradition, engagement was, was as binding as, as the actual um, after the wedding, so he would have had to issue an actual uh, certificate of divorce. It was a big deal, but he was going to do it quietly, just so there'd be no shame brought upon Mary. He was a respectable man. I could imagine that after he has his angelic visitation in a dream, telling him, giving him the news that, hey, no, she, she's been, uh, conceived this child by the Holy Spirit. There was no wrongdoing. I could imagine afterwards, he alone had that encounter in this dream. It was in a dream. He still had pressure from others, family and friends, to divorce her. Hey, you need to move on. Like, she messed up. She's been defiled. You need, to, you need to move on. But what does he do? He's obedient to the voice of the Lord. He's obedient to God's ways. That's humility when we, when we set aside the opinions of others. And Joseph was that type of man of God. That's humility to not be swayed to and fro by what other people think and what other people's opinions. Matthew chapter 2, we see the same thing. And so starting to pack up things in Bethlehem. Things are getting settled and they're, of course, going to move back to Nazareth. But again, he has an angelic visitation. This angel tells him to move to Egypt. Egypt, what? Move to a foreign country? Why? Herod, King Herod is, is out to kill uh, this Messiah, this Christ child. And he is willing to put his family plans to the side. And I'm sure he had family and friends back in Nazareth preparing a place for them and excited to greet them. You know, after people would get married in Hebrew culture, the men would take an entire year off from working. I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and uh, they would just focus on them as a couple, getting established. I'm sure he had plans in that year ahead in Nazareth to be established. But instead, nope, I'm going to Egypt. We're going to go see the pyramids instead for however many years to fulfill the prophecy spoken of the Christ child. That is humility, to not be swayed by the opinions of others. Hey, go here, Joseph, do this. We think you should do this. Not that we can't take into consideration the wisdom and the advice of others, but Joseph was a man who's fixed on God's ways in his life. This has been something that God has been tearing out of me for a long time, and I'm not perfect in this way. But I had a mentor uh, speak strongly into my life in this area. 
And he used the analogy of, of how a door swings on hinges. He said, Drew, just like a door swings on hinges, so it is with you by, in regards to the things that you allow to influence you in your day-to-day. And he said, Drew, I just noticed that you are easily swayed by people's opinions and what people think of you, being respected. We're all different for me and my upbringing. That's just been something that I've continually struggled with, wanting to be respected, wanting to be liked. And I had a, a mentor that was bold enough to speak into my life, and he, sa- he said this very thing. He said, Drew, you need to unhinge yourself from significance being based on the respect of others and other people's opinions, and you need to rehinge your life on intimacy with God and what God's calling you to do. That analogy of a door on hinges, I think, is a vivid illustration of what we allow to sway us. What, is our lives, what, what are our lives hinged on? And I was thankful that he, 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 he uh, captured my, my heart and my mind in that way. Yes, I want to rehinge my life on intimacy with God. That is my, the greatest calling upon my life. And from the place of intimacy, God will call us to very specific things. Things that other people may not understand. Other people may question. Other people may have opinions of what, what they think is best for your life. But when you were rooted in intimacy and divine calling, divine assignment, we can set those things to the side and really pursue God's best for our lives. And Joseph was that type of man. Example of the opinion of others dying to radical obedience. Let's consider the shepherds for a moment. They're talked about in the Luke account. I think the shepherds are an example of obscurity being brought into an intimate worship experience. Shepherds are an example of obscurity being brought into, into an intimate worship experience. The shepherd's job is a job that is not recognized by productivity, right? The, no one um, takes note of how amazing of a job shepherds do when they're doing things right. They only get recognized when they do things wrong. Oh, wait, thieves came in and stole the sheep. What happened? What did you guys do? Or if wolves come in and they, they take part of the, the, the flock, then everyone's harping on the shepherds. But if they're doing everything right, it's more of everyone forgets about them, right? It's obscurity. I, I kind of think of the sound and media people being like shepherds because no one recognizes them when everything sounds and looks amazing. But when things sound bad, there's feedback. They're like, come on, guys. What's going on? Can you guys do anything right around here? I know, I know, I feel for you guys, but it's from that place of obscurity, I think that can actually set us up into an intimate worship experience because we're already off the platform. We're already not in performance mode when we can embrace obscurity, when we can embrace uh, being on the sidelines or in the background, is better, in the background, we can actually have an intimate encounter with God Almighty because we're already not in performance mode. Just embrace it. And the shepherds did. And in that moment when they had an angel appear and then a whole host of angels appear, they were open to it. They were not trying to impress anybody. They were not trying to put on a mask or facade. They were comfortable in their own skin. They were comfortable even in their obscurity. I also believe, I also believe that these shepherds represent a type of leadership that I so desire to, for our church to exude. It's this type of leadership that's okay with doing whatever it takes, and shepherds embody that. 
They're willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's not uh, the, the, uh, the, the best role in, in the family, in the clan. God continually, throughout his plan, raised up shepherds. Abraham, some sort of herdsman. Moses had his 40 years as a shepherd. David, the shepherd. God continually looks to these leaders who have a shepherd's heart, who are willing to do whatever it takes, even in obscurity, and he'll raise them up for kingdom influence. I had a mentor, my former boss, Tom Jacobs, who's the superintendent of the Assemblies of God. He said it like this, that the greatest test of a servant leader is when you're treated like a servant. Ooh, that stung for me. I was like, oh, yeah. You know, when, when people actually look down at me as, as a servant, then the real test of my desire to be a servant leader is it's, it's on. And I believe the shepherds, as they embrace that, they embrace that form of leadership, that form of influence. God exalts it, and God encounters them in an intimate and a real way. Next we have, let's consider the Magi. The Magi were an example of worldly, uh, worldly affluence being used for kingdom influence. We don't know a ton about the Magi. There's all sorts of speculation. They, they could be some sort of wise men or philosophers or they could be astrologers. Later tradition, a couple centuries later, it kind of arose that they were kings, kings from this foreign land. It's obvious that they were affluent, they were wealthy because of the gifts that they brought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we don't know a ton about them. But I believe that the Magi or these wise men can be an amazing example for us of this kingdom principle and the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Because here were great men in the, in, the, in the world's eyes. They were influential and affluential. If they were kings, even more so. They were great. But even in their own greatness, they were willing and able to recognize the greatness of God. Their own greatness did not cloud out the greatness of God which is one of the greatest temptations if we, if we walk into any sort of success or greatness in this world. It's that we would get too big for our britches, am I right? And the greatness of God becomes less in our eyes and our own greatness gets exalted. But the Magi, who had no uh, connection or affiliation with Judaism or with this Messiah inherently that they knew of, obviously they, I believe that they encountered Christ in a significant way in, sa- in a saving faith eventually, but here were these foreigners who were willing to recognize greatness outside of themselves, outside of their own greatness. And God exalted them. They go down in history as part of the few that recognize the coming of the Messiah. It reminded me of the story of President Teddy Roosevelt. President, one of the, one of the most influential and great men uh, of his time. There's a story told of him and his friend, William Beebe, who's a naturalist. They walked out, one evening they walked out into the, to the, the front lawn of the White House. They looked up into the sky and they just gazed at the stars. Teddy Roosevelt pointed out a faint light in the lower region of the, uh, the Pegasus constellation. And he said, you see that right there? That is the Andromeda galaxy. It's the closest galaxy to our galaxy, the Milky Way, it's, it's about the same size as our galaxy. 
It's one of 100 million galaxies. This was 100 years ago, so he didn't, his numbers weren't quite right. What he said was this is one of 100 million galaxies in our universe. In the Andromeda galaxy, there's over 100 million suns the size of our sun. Sorry, he said 100 billion suns the size of our sun. He says that's 3 million light years away. And then they just kind of sat there and gazed at the stars. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, he then said, well, now we feel small enough, let's go to sleep. That's the president of the United States, one of the, the greatest men of his day and one of the most influential men in that moment. And yet he was willing to recognize how small his greatness was in comparison to the greatness of God. And I think it's profound that here these great influential, affluential men were led by a star. Because it's, it's the very cosmos of the universe that put in perspective our own accomplishments and our own greatness. And these men, they were willing to recognize that. If anything put them in their, if they were kings in their kingdom, their greatness was the end all be all. But they quickly gazed up into the, the cosmos and they realized their, their tiny insignificance, how small their greatness was. And they were willing to be led in this humble pursuit of something even greater. And it led them to this moment with the Christ child. I think it's an, an amazing example. Just consider their affluence for a moment. I've kind of focused mostly on their greatness and their influence and their power and their authority. They were humble in that, but they were, I believe they were also humble in their affluence, their money. I feel, I feel like money is one of the greatest indicators of where our heart is. That's what Jesus said. That's not my own idea. That's Jesus. And the here were men that were willing to give an extravagant gift to this Christ child. Our affluence, and we have a ton of affluence, can be an, an amazing blessing and influence in the kingdom of God. Not, not mathematically, not, it's not a, um, a, a direct formula, but out of a heart of generosity, when we give extravagantly like these, these men did, God blesses it, he exalts it, he rewards it. One of my heroes is a man named John Wesley, one of the, the most influential leaders of the first great awakening that swept across the United States and Europe. And John Wesley had a saying where he said, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And when he said save all you can, he wasn't talking about hoarding it. He was talking about thriftiness. Like make your money go as far as you can make it go so that at the end of the day you can give all you can. He has an amazing testimony of, of, of his stewardship and money and his generosity and money. It's told of John Wesley that when he started his ministry in the 1730s that he lived off about $6,000. This is current 2017 numbers. I did the math. 30 pounds of his time, which is calculates to be $6,000 today. He lived off that annually, every year. Obviously, as he grew in influence, he traveled the, traveled the world speaking in the name of Christ. He came across a lot of money. So much so that it's estimated by 1790, around the time he passed away, that he, in our dollars, he made over $300,000 a year. The, the fascinating thing about it, he still lived off of 6000 the same amount. He had been living off for 60 years, his $6,000. He lived what he preached. Gain all you can, save all you can, so you can give all you can. There's actually a story told of John Wesley. 
For one day, he was in his study, and this chambermaid came into his study, and all she was wearing was a cold winter day. All she was wearing was this thin linen cloth. So he reached in his pocket to give her what he had, and he realized he didn't have enough. Literally, moments before, he had just been purchasing some picture frames for his office, and he realized, I don't got enough money in my pocket to buy this lady who's suffering in the cold just something more to keep her warm. And he said this. He asked himself, Will thy master say, Well done, good and faithful steward? Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money which might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Referring to the pictures that he had just purchased for his office. I don't say that in condemnation. I don't say that in a judgmental way. I preach this to myself, wanting my, my, me my, in my own life to walk with this humble uh, respect for the, the role of our affluence and our wealth in this world. God can use our wealth for kingdom influence. It's one of the most practical ways to show love to our neighbor. Let's finally consider Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. I believe Jesus is the example of the perfect servant being exalted as king of kings. It's the, it's the ultimate, most humble, being exalted to the highest place. It's the most extreme example. The perfect servant. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's the place to which Jesus has been exalted. Through his humbling of himself, by him setting aside what was rightfully his in the first place, setting aside his authority, his power, his riches, and coming in the form of a weak, weakling baby, dependent on others, than sitting in a livestock trough. It's the most extreme example of this upside-down gospel. I think it's fascinating that one of the very first heresies of the early church was this attack on Jesus actually coming in the flesh. Because I believe that we all resist this idea, this radical example of, of humility. Our king of glory being brought into the humble estate of flesh and bones like you and I, and on top of that, a baby, fully dependent. The great historian Bruce Jolly, he wrote this, of this, the second set, there were multiple heresies that, were, that rose up to counter this idea of Jesus being born in the flesh. Gnosticism, docetism, but this is what Bruce Shelley said. He said, the event, God in flesh, has always struck man as religious nonsense. History shows how tirelessly man schemes, searching for some substitute explanation. But it's the true good news of Jesus Christ, that he really did come in flesh. Defies our logic, defi defies even what we want to be true, but it's the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ that he would set aside his own interests for your interests. Jesus was so confident in who he was. He was the son of God. 
And therefore he was willing to do what was necessary for the glory of the Father, which I believe is the ultimate form of humility. When we know who we are, we know our position in, in the grand scheme of things, we can do anything God asks of us. Humility is not tearing yourself down, putting yourself down, not being a floor mat to others. It's walking with this confidence that you know who you are and in anything God asks you to do, you can do it. That's why Jesus could walk with humility, the most extreme example of humility, but yet people could recognize the authority that he had. He could wash his disciples' feet. He could be seen with the worst of the worst. And it didn't bother in his core because he walked with such humility. He knew who he was. He knew that his role was to be, to be obedient to the Father. And that's where the Christmas story brings us. I just want to end with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which is where I started. God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes in this place. This morning, every single one of us can be in Christ Jesus. If we embrace this kingdom principle, this kingdom truth, that God exalts the humble. Nothing else can we boast in. If we'll humble ourselves and recognize his perfect work, and I believe this Christmas season, it's a perfect season for every single one of us to recenter ourselves on this principle of humility winning the day. Humility being a driving force in the kingdom of God. It's a principle that flows into how we work in the workplace, how we carry ourselves in our home, how we carry ourselves with our neighbors, with our spouse, with our kids, how we are carrying ourselves in this church environment. Humility is exalted. God rewards the humble in heart. He meets us. I want all of us to respond this morning. But first, I do want to give an opportunity for anybody in this place who does not have a relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Drew, I, I want to start a relationship with Christ. Or, or maybe you've prayed a prayer in the past, but this morning you just know you need to make things right. I'm gonna give you an opportunity. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand, not because I'm gonna call you out, but just because I like to know who's responding. If that's you in this place, you'd say, Andrew, I wanna start a relationship with Christ. I wanna start afresh in my relationship with Christ. If that'd be you, just raise your hand. Awesome, awesome. Number of hands if there's anybody else. If you raised your hand, or even if you didn't, you can pray a prayer like this. God, this morning, I just recognized in the grand scheme of things how helpless I am to make anything of my life. In the grand scheme of eternity, God, I know I come up short. And so this morning, I just place my life before you. Humbly, I say, God, I need you as Savior and as Lord and as King in my heart and my life. God, I want a relationship with you that I know can only happen through Jesus Christ. And so this morning, 
I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord, fully sufficient to take care of my sin issue. No turning back, Jesus. I'm following you in your name. Amen. If everyone would stand in this place, I'm going to pray a prayer over us as a church. A prayer over this Christmas season that God would just flood our hearts with the humility of heaven. And that would flow into these coming weeks, these next two weeks of as we spend time with family and friends, as you travel, or if for some reason you're alone this Christmas season, that God would even meet you in that humble place of loneliness or obscurity. So God, this morning, I stand before my church family I love so dearly. And I want your kingdom reality, your gospel reality, your upside down way of the, of the humble being exalted. I want that to become a truth that floods our hearts and minds. I want us to be a church that is willing to do anything, go anywhere for your kingdom's sake, for your glory. We wanna follow the example of Jesus. We wanna take up our cross and follow you. We wanna die to ourselves so that you might be seen more clearly in our church. We pray in your mighty name. God, I pray over the next two weeks that Lord, as people gather in their homes, that your presence would be there, that individuals would encounter Christ, that you would be exalted as we all walk with humility in pursuit of you. In your mighty name, Jesus, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.